Well, good morning. It is good to see you all. Thank you for joining us this morning. Of course, also if you're joining us online, it is a pleasure uh, to be with you and to open up God's Word and to do so in this wonderful new series on the book of Nehemiah. What a timely book that is for our day. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, please do turn there to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. Now today we're going to talk about what it takes to rebuild, what it takes to rebuild, and it's, it's time to rebuild, not just because of what 2020 did to us all and, and to our patterns of life, but because of decades-long shifts in society that have assaulted the church and seduced the church away from what God would have us do in this generation. So it is time to rebuild. Now, to say that it's time to rebuild is to say that it's time to pray. That's where we start. Uh, that's what we need. And there's no successful rebuild that bypasses calling on God first. It's just impossible for it to be a success unless God's in it, and unless we ask God to be involved. You know, God wants us to pray. God gave us prayer. I love what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said about prayer. It, it helps me shift my mindset a little bit. He says, prayer is not over, overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. God is willing uh, to do a work in, in our generation. Uh, God is willing to, to, to do something in us and in this community and in this nation and in this generation. He sits on the edge of his throne waiting to see if his people want it also. If we want to bring him down, if we want it so much that, that we pray above, uh, for it above anything else beyond all our personal aspirations in life, God gave us prayer. Prayer works by God's design. We must believe when we pray. I love the story of, of, of the little church that held all-night prayer meetings uh, to call God to intervene in town because uh, a guy was building a pub, a bar, and they didn't want that. And so they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and wouldn't you know it, lightning struck the bar and burnt it to the ground. And they were all impressed with themselves and all thankful that God had supernaturally intervened. And, and they were a little smug about the situation. Yeah, don't mess with our God town. Until the bar owner sued the church on the grounds that their prayers had caused his bar to burn down. Uh, then they were quite quick to say, well, you know, it was natural causes and the case came before a judge and the judge was in a bit of a pickle and he expressed his predicament quite well when he said this, no matter how this comes out, one thing is clear. It appears that we have a bar owner who adamantly believes in the power of prayer and a church full of people who don't. <laughs> Prayer works by God's design. God wants us to call him down to do a work in this land, to supernaturally step in. And you know it, you see it around you. Society is absolutely cannibalizing itself. I love what uh, a previous uh, 
scholar, Bible teacher of a, another generation, Warren Wearsby says, he says that what the church needs to do now is to respond with, with anguish, not with anger. With anguish, not with anger. Anguish enough to fall on our knees and call upon God to have mercy. Well, today I wanna to show you a man in prayer. Uh, Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter one, uh, prays to the Lord. And, and, and as we observe his prayer, we, we learn to pray. We learn that the beginning of this rebuild requires that we pray like Jeremiah prayed. So let's, let's start there. Let me show you as way of a little bit of a recap from last week, the problem of the nation, the problem that the nation had. We see it in verses three and four, the, the crisis that so physically upset uh, Nehemiah that brought him to his knees. Look at verse three. And they, that's the people who brought the report to Nehemiah, said to me, Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile, they've survived the exile, they're back from exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is, is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Here is a deeply distressed man at the state of affairs in the world in which he lives. And the question that you should ask is why? Why is he so upset? Why get this upset. I get this, getting this upset at shocking personal news, right? The, the, the news of the, of, the, of the death of a loved one, the news of a, a wayward child that just is running from God and won't come back. That's deeply distressing to the point that I would perhaps begin to emulate Nehemiah, but, but why is he sitting down and weeping and mourning about what seems to be a pile of rocks that were once a wall and charred wooden gates 800 miles away. That's baffling to me in, in some sense. And, and if you look at the chronology of it, it's been in that condition for 140 years. This isn't, this isn't new. This has been like this for quite a while. This isn't recent. Why is Nehemiah so upset about a pile of rubble? Well, this isn't any broken wall that's left as a pile of stones in a distant land. This is, the, this is God's rubble. This is Jerusalem. This is the, the, the city of the great king. This is, as God refers to it, my holy city. In, in, the, in God's plan for the ages and in the flow of human history and God's involvement in it, God picked Jerusalem to be the place where he would be found, to be the place where his presence would be manifested. And when people saw life under God in Jerusalem, the nations would essentially be hearing the gospel, how good it is to live life under that God, not all these other fake gods. How wonderful it is to live his ways, to follow his commands, to live under his authority. 
Well, 140 years ago, God's people had so mocked God's advertisement in the world that God disciplined them and God sent them into exile and he allowed his great city to be pillaged and its gates to be burnt and its walls to be brought down to rubble. But he brought them back. It was corrective discipline. He restored them to the land to start all over again, to be an advert to the world of what Yahweh is like, to invite the nations into a relationship with God and to learn his word in Jerusalem. But their commitment to rebuild when they came back was was weak, it was pathetic, it was apathetic. They, They really weren't that interested in getting back into God's program. They were wobbly in their commitment at at best. And so God did what God always does. He sends them a few preachers, right? Preacher Haggai comes along and he says through a little bit of rebuke, you know, it's time to put God first. Put God first in your life. Build his temple that that represents his reputation in the world and stop building all your summer houses. That's what Haggai says. Stop living your life to pursue your own personal comfort and to ignore God's program in the world. There's some hard-hitting preaching. Preacher Haggai comes along with, God sent them Haggai. And God sent them another preacher, a guy called Zechariah. He takes a little bit of a different approach. Rather than motivate them through rebuke, he tries to motivate them through reward. Wouldn't it be great to be aligned with the God of the universe and what he's doing in the world? We can do that. The future's bright with God. Zechariah and Haggai preached remarkable sermons just about 50, 60 years before Nehemiah. But there's still a pile of rubble that one would call Jerusalem. He sends them Ezra, and Ezra tries to get the community of faith back into the word of God so that they can construct society a la God. Society flourishes when it's aligned with God's way for humankind. Nehemiah is not upset, my friends, what I'm saying here about a pile of rubble, just stones, not just any pile of rubble. Just like you don't get upset when, when your flag, the American flag, gets desecrated just because of the loss of the cost of the cloth. What upsets you is what's being done to what that flag represents. This pile of rubble represents the reputation of God in the world. God is being made a joke in the world when his city is still lying in the condition that it's lying in. Seventy to 80 years after the return. That's upsetting to Nehemiah. The world's not gonna see our God as the only God, but as a weak and as a pathetic and as an irrelevant God because his own people don't even care. They don't even care. My friends, the problem of the nation is that God's reputation is being ridiculed in the world. God's reputation is being ridiculed in the world. That's what this pile of stones and burnt gates means. God's been shamed among the nations. 
Now, this is very relevant to us. This isn't just a little uh, walk down history's lane here. And let me explain why. Uh, and let me be very, very clear. We're not Israel. I, I, we, the church, are not Israel. And God has plans for Israel still in the future. He's made commitments to them and he will bring them about. But in this era in history, post the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Spirit, and until uh, we go to be with the Lord, this era is the church age and God has chosen that his reputation be manifested in the world through the church. That's not my personal opinion. That's New Testament teaching. Study the book of Ephesians. God's reputation in the world today is mediated through the community of faith, the believers, the church, you, me. We advertise God in the world. And so this forces us to ask the question, how good does God look through the church? Does God look like a pile of rubble today as the world would look at us? A weak, pathetic God? This doesn't sit well with Nehemiah. This shouldn't sit well with you. God deserves way better than that. And so Nehemiah can't sleep and he can't eat and he prays and he weeps and he weeps. This breaks his heart. God deserves better. So let me ask you this question by way of application. What makes you weep? What makes you weep? What upsets you reveals what you value. What upsets you reveals what is a priority in your life. The church's walls are breached. Morally, ethically, missionally. Preacher Haggai could be resurrected and show up here tomorrow and preach the same sermons and they'd be as relevant as the ones he was preaching in, in the 6th, 5th century BC. And I'm not, I'm not picking on you, I'm poking at myself. My heart gets upset over the silliest of things. I mean, all riled up over the silliest of things like... The other day, when I was wanting to watch rugby on the television, and I'm telling you, I went into the living room, the kids were gone, which is just an added blessing for my time with my rugby match. And could I find that sneaky rascal, the remote control to save my life? No. I mean, my blood was boiling. I was throwing cushions everywhere, trying to find this thing, the rascal, I think it has legs and a mind of its own, a very wicked heart. Always hides when I need it. I was put out, bent out of shape, emotionally invested and disappointed simply because I missed a few minutes of a rugby match. I get upset about the silliest of things. But is it ever because of my God's reputation in the world through my life and through the life of my brothers and sisters in Christ? I, I get that the world mocks my God, but do I, do we mock our God through the way we pursue life? 
is he a pile of rubble, functionally speaking? Nehemiah models a beautiful response to, to that problem. And, and the response is the prayer. He takes this issue to God in prayer, which is where all problems find a resolution. That's where the fix starts. That's where we start to fix the situation. And so verses five to 11 there in chapter one are, are his prayer for the nation, his prayer for God's reputation. Friends, you know, the secret to spiritual success and breakthrough in a society, according to Charles Spurgeon, a yesteryear's preacher, a favorite of mine, was, was this, and it's, it's simply this, knee work. Knee work. Working those knees, getting on your knees. I love that image. It's so accessible. Prayer works. Well, Nehemiah gets on his prayer and on his knees to pray and he models, he models a pattern of prayer. He models a posture of the heart in prayer that teaches you and that teaches me how we should approach God with this problem. This is the way to come before God. Now, if you have a copy of the sermon notes, I've tried to organize his prayer according to the very familiar acronym, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, thanksgiving and supplication. It's, it's very helpful. Approach God that way. Nehemiah approaches God this way. Now, he's not thinking of the word acts. I'm sure he had no thought of the English language way back then, but it is helpful to you and I, and it is a beautiful, memorable, biblical pattern of prayer. So let me walk you through that. Verse five where we see Nehemiah starting the way we should start. This is how to approach God, to approach God with adoration, to approach God with admiration for who he is, to approach God with praise on our lips. Look at verse five. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah approaches God believing that he is truly awesome. And I don't use that word lightly. That word is only appropriate in being directed toward God. It, it speaks of being feared, not, not feared in the sense of, oh, I'm scared of him. I'm, I'm shaking in my little sandals, but, but I, I revere you. I come into your presence knowing that you're a holy God, that you're majestic, that you're to be honored. I come knowing who you are. You're above all else. There is no one that is your equal. And I'm aware of that as I come into your presence. You're a God who's reliable, reliable to your commitments and you're good. You're good. Only God is truly awesome and, and Nehemiah was aware of that. Nehemiah doesn't wander into God's presence as though he's walking into his college roommate in the living room watching TV. Hey, what's up? No. He doesn't, he doesn't just bark orders at God as though God is a, a butler or, or Alexa. You know, Alexa, what time is it? That kind of a thing. No. There's deep respect for the majesty of God because he understands who it is he's coming before. He entered the presence of an awesome God, a holy God with adoration first. 
admiration first. When you contemplate God's greatness, you become very, very aware of your own condition before him. I mean, you fixate your eyes on the beauty of God and before too long, you begin to feel filthy. You begin to understand that I don't measure up. I'm not like him. And so Nehemiah turns to confession. Nehemiah turns to repentance of his sins before God. Yes, he's, God is attentive. He gives ear to his prayer. And yes, God is accessible. He, he, he will listen day and night to his prayers. But, but look at verses six and seven. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments and your statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah knows that he too has personally aggrieved God. It's, it's not everybody around me, Lord, that stinks and is a pagan. I too, when I look at you and I look at my life, I must confess I am an insult to what you want. This is the response of all the people that we read about in the scriptures that come into the presence of God. Read, read the story of Isaiah's call. Read Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9. Look at Revelation 1 and what happens in the book of Revelation, what happens to the Apostle John when he comes before the presence of the risen Christ. Read the calling of Jeremiah. Read the calling of Ezekiel. These people come into the presence of God and before too long, they're aware that they need to come clean with God. That if they dare ask anything of him, they better ask first for repentance for forgiveness. Now to the moment you've all been waiting for, a story of James. James ran into my room, my youngest ran into my room the other day and he was a little bit concerned. He brought me a toy that was broken and he wanted me to fix it. And I very quickly realized that's not his toy. So he has a problem here. And then I very quickly realized that's not fixable. So, but, 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 I, but I appreciated that he came to me and, and I said, hey, James, what's, what's going on here? He says, well, you know, can you fix it? Can you fix it? And I said, uh, whose is it? And he said, it's Jake's, his brother. And I thought, okay, at least he's confessing. I said, James, I can't fix that. And of course, his face just went, uh-oh, what am I gonna do? I said, James, is that your toy? And he says, no, dad, that's Jake's toy. And I broke it. And I said, well, listen, I am so glad that you have confessed. I mean, you've made my heart proud that you owned up to it, you know, and that's, that's important that we do that. And as I spoke, he, his countenance lifted. It's like he became more happy. And he responded to me, thanks, dad. Now let's go hide it. Complete U-turn, right? And on, on where I thought we were going and now I was suddenly a partner in his crime. 
No, we've to come clean before God, not hide our sin. Be open and honest before him. We can't rebuild anything unless our hearts are clean and unless our hands are clean and that requires confession and Nehemiah knew it. And then his prayer turns to thanksgiving and gratitude, which is where we should go. When you contemplate the greatness of God and then his mercy on your life as you come clean before him, that leads to thanksgiving, to gratitude. Look at verses eight and, and to 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah is reminding God of what God wrote to Moses a thousand years earlier. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the earth, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there, which we know is Jerusalem. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. God was faithful is what Nehemiah is saying there. You acted exactly like you said you would act, even to the point of bringing us back to the land once we turned back to you. God's been faithful and Nehemiah was thankful. God treated his people as he said he would. He did not deserve his reputation to continue now into the next phase of his workings in the world as a pile of rubble, some burnt gates. Now, after contemplating God's awesomeness and repenting of personal sin and, and thanking God for his faithfulness, now Nehemiah is ready to make a supplication before God, to make his requests known to God. And that's what we see at the beginning of verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. That's his prayer request. Nehemiah asks God to make him favorably disposed toward this man. This man is the king of Persia. Uh, the king of Persia uh, is who Nehemiah goes in to approach. We see that in chapter two. I'm not gonna go there. But in, in chapter two, verse five, Nehemiah makes his request to the king and his request to the king is that he be allowed to go back to rebuild his city. All along, this prayer has been about rebuilding the city, rebuilding God's reputation. That's the prayer for the nation, is that God would rebuild. It's, it's rebuild, Lord, rebuild, Lord. And I'm gonna go and ask this king if he will let me go, but I know that you're the one who has the ultimate say. Victory here is all down to you, God, not down to him. In fact, did you know that this prayer that we just read is a summary prayer, actually. It's a prayer that was characteristic of Nehemiah's four-month-long prayer session. Nehemiah was in prayer for about 100 days. 
The walls took about 52 days to build. But the rebuilding of those walls that took 52 days were, were built on the foundations of 100 days of prayer, asking the Lord to rebuild. Prayer is, is as practical as it comes. So let me ask you this question, second question for you this, this morning. And it's this, what do you pray for? I asked you earlier, what do you weep for? Now I'm asking you, what do you pray for? What's on your regular prayer list? That, that also reveals what you value most. What you pray about is a window into what's in your heart and what you want in life. Prayer expresses your priorities. Uh, do you ever pray to God, for God, for Him, for His glory, for His reputation to be flowing through your life in whatever He and wherever He may lead you? Have you ever committed to some regular knee work? Knee work. Now, God answered this prayer. We read about it also in chapter two, verse eight. It's very, very clear that Nehemiah got success before this king because God gave it. God granted it. God's the one who calls the shots here. He's the one, remember, that we have to lay hold of his willingness. He's willing. But are we? Nehemiah was willing. God granted him success. But what I need you to understand is that, that God doesn't give ear to just any prayer. God doesn't just listen to anybody. I mean, he, he, he can hear everybody, but in terms of directing his attentions and actually uh, doing something about the requests that come before his throne room, he, he doesn't just answer anyone. And why would he? Why should he uh, respond to those who enter his presence rife with sin and riddled with bitterness and, and, and saturated with selfishness? With, with their own personal plans for how God can enrich their lives? No, God listens to the prayer of the righteous. The person that God listens to is the righteous person like Nehemiah. This is a teaching throughout the scriptures. James chapter five, verse 16. The, the prayers of the righteous man are effective and powerful. Godly people have rights with God and, and so the person that God listens to is the righteous person. Nehemiah, uh, just as you look at your sermon notes, had his head screwed on, uh, had his heart formed and he was hands on. What do I mean by that? That Nehemiah was the complete package. We, we saw that in his prayer. You're gonna see that in his series. In the prayer, we realize that he knows truth. His head screwed on. I know who God is. I know what God is about. I know what his purposes are in history. I know how I fit. And his heart was formed. I love that God. I, I'm disgusted by the reputation that he has in the world because of me and my people. He's soft on God, but he's a hands-on practical guy. And, and we see that particularly through verse 11, that little section at the end of verse 11, where it says this, I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah wants us to know that he is a practical guy, that he has been positioned 
professionally in a certain role in life in the king's service. And it's a remarkable role. I mean, you don't get to be a cupbearer to the king unless you're a real head screwed on, right heart, hands on kind of a guy. The cupbearer was a massive rank in that system. And that was a massive kingdom all the way from modern day Turkey to modern day Afghanistan and from modern day Russia all the way down to modern day Egypt. Massive kingdom. And Nehemiah is positioned right in the inner circle as the right hand man of this king. He's been vetted, he's been groomed, he's been educated, he's been tested. He's shown competence in the workplace. He's shown character in the workplace. He's shown charisma in the workplace. That's why he's the cupbearer. He's a hands-on practical guy, but he understands that his professional positioning in the workplace is the providence of God. God put him there. And now it's time to step up. Now it's time to step up. 100 days of praying and now I've got to go and do something about it with the king because it's time to rebuild. For those of you who like history, it's quite interesting. Uh, This king, it's called Artaxerxes Longomanus, his dad was the king that was married to Queen Esther. And we don't know this from the book of Esther, But that king was assassinated. And he was assassinated, one of the theories is, by his cupbearer. Last line of defense on the life of the king, his lips. A guy called Artabanus, it seems, killed him. So Nehemiah is an exceptional individual. And he wants to step up for God and rebuild God's honor at that time. I love the story of D.L. Moody. I don't know if you've heard of D.L. Moody. He was the Billy Graham of the previous century. Billy, uh, uh, D.L. Moody uh, was used by God to bring millions of people to their knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the founder of what is now Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. There's a Moody Church named after him. There's Moody Press, there's Moody Radio. I mean, the guy had a big impact for God. And I love the story because he started out as a shoe salesman for his uncle, but he had a heart for God and he wanted to serve God in his generation. And in his early days, he was in, above all places, Dublin, Ireland, and he was listening to a guy called Henry Varley, an evangelist. And this evangelist said this, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Fully consecrated to him. When Moody heard that, uh, it changed his life. And he committed to himself and to God that he would be that man. I will be that man. I will be that person, not for selfish reasons, but for God's glory. And so my friends, I I, I close with another question. Will you be that person? Will you be that man? Will you be that godly woman? Would you be that person who, who, who gets into that gap and, and, and intercedes before God 
so that his name would shine in our day and so that our generation of people would come to know Jesus Christ and walk with Jesus Christ and enter into eternal life with him. The best thing that you could possibly do for America and for the next generation is to be burdened about how God looks in this society. To be concerned about how we look in this community for God. And all it takes is some knee work. Laying hold of God's willingness to do a work in this generation, to rebuild beginning there. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you because it is so timely. What a timely book this is, Lord. And I pray that you would help us not just contemplate your beauty, but to come clean before you so that we live grateful lives to you and ultimately devote ourselves to serving you in this society because you deserve it. You deserve to look good through us. In Jesus' name, amen.